Not many years ago, people in our land, whether saved or lost, generally had a real, a healthy, a biblical fear of God. There was a basic measure of common grace among men. And they had a knowledge of heaven and a fear of hell. They had a fear of God's judgment and His wrath upon those who were bad. Bad people would go, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be judged by God and incur His wrath. I don't want to go to hell. And so they would restrain themselves from wickedness and evil. And yet today, only a few years later, that healthy fear of God is all but non-existent. As today, people have been for many years in public schools taught that they're just animals who have evolved to a higher stage or a higher level after they crawled up out of the ooze and the slimy pool and evolved into this or to that. Monkeys and gorillas and now men. Even though there is absolutely no evidence, no scientific evidence to prove that whatsoever, and tons of scientific evidence to prove that is a lie, yet that's what's taught, and that's what our children have been raised to believe, and that's why in our generation today we have wickedness abounding. Because people have been taught that they're only animals and that there is no Creator God. No God to answer to for our sins. No God to send us to hell or to judge us for the things that we've done that are wrong. And they believe that there will be no punishment or nothing that will happen against them because there is no God. They deny Him. They deny His Word. And so you have sodomite marriages being forced upon our society. Millions of abortions. Millions of people accepting money that they don't work for. And countless people who are on legalized drugs, even put forth by our own government. This happens only when there is no healthy, no real, no biblical fear of God or His judgment. Because if that existed, these things would not be so rampant in our day. But because they deny God and His Word, we are seeing this result in our society. You know, this troubles me greatly. Those of you who were here Wednesday at our prayer time know I was troubled greatly by even our own state's decision not to continue to fight against sodomite marriages. And yet I say to you, and you know that it's true, What can I do? What can I say 
to people who refuse to heed God, who refuse to believe His Word, who don't even want to hear His Word. I cannot make anyone believe in God. I cannot change one man or one woman or one boy or one girl's heart. I cannot do it. And fortunately, I'm not called to do it. What I'm called to do is to tell you what God's Word says. To warn you about God's wrath, His judgment, the reality that it is in the Scriptures. To tell you what God says and to tell you that there is a Savior for your sins who is Jesus. I tell you these things from the Word of God and He, by the Spirit then, takes that Word and pierces hearts. And that's why for the past 22 now weeks, we have been looking at what we have entitled the beauty of wrath, seeing from the Scriptures the teaching about the wrath of God. I am, yes, warning you that men will have to give an account, but I am also pleading with you that you don't have to incur His wrath if you are saved in Christ. This is what we have been doing. And we began by seeing from the Scriptures what we called the reality of wrath. That churches actually sometimes inadvertently teach about the wrath of God because they say, you need to be saved. They don't say, saved from what? But the Scripture is that you need to be saved from the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. That is the reality of wrath taught in the Scriptures. Even our Lord Jesus taught and warned men not to go into fiery hell. We then went on to consider from the Scriptures the reason for God's wrath. It is His perfect justice. If God were not to judge, if God were not to be just, He would not be perfect. It would not be right to treat the wicked and the righteous the same way. And so, in His perfect justice, His wrath glorifies Him. And in His paying for wrath, it glorifies Christ. And the Holy Spirit, taking the knowledge of the wrath of God to the hearts of men, uses it to save men. These are the reasons for the wrath of God. And most recently, and we are closing with our third point, the response to wrath. The reason for wrath, the reality of wrath, the response to wrath. How do you look at the wrath of God? For many, they don't even think of it. It doesn't even matter. But for us, I believe there are at least three things that ought to come to our hearts and our minds as we consider the wrath of God. The first one we saw a few weeks ago, it should increase our eagerness to evangelize. We don't want people to go to hell. We don't want our loved ones to go to that place of eternal wrath and punishment. So we should be eager 
to evangelize and to tell men of not only the wrath of God, but of the salvation of Christ. And secondly, we considered it ought to increase our magnitude of gratitude. When we consider what Christ has done for us in His saving work on our behalf, that we will not incur the wrath of God, how thankful we should be. Last Lord's Day we considered first, under this broad heading from Luke chapter 12, our relationship to our goods. As Jesus talked to that man who said, Look, I've got all this stuff. I'll just build bigger barns and I'll rest and take my ease. And Jesus said, This day your soul will be required of you. Don't cling to your goods. Because they're no good without Christ. And we saw that last Lord's Day. And today we turn to our praise for our redemption. And this comes from Peter. So I ask you to turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 1. I say again because we read that a little while ago. Peter brings this praise For our redemption. He begins in verse 3 and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've heard me say this on a number of occasions. That when we say we bless God, it's not like we can make God more blessed than He is. God is already as blessed and as glorious as He can ever be. Because He's all blessed, all glorious. So this is a term of endearment, a term of praise. It is, as Paul said in first and second Corinthians chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. In other words, we're praising you. So this is a term of praise and thanksgiving. To God. Now, what is he praising and thanking God for? For his great mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, his great mercy. We talk about the mercy of God often. You know that that word mercy refers to his love. Elias is the Greek word, and it means his, his love, his compassion, his goodwill to all men. And it is joined with that compassion to help and to care for his creation. But that's not all Peter is talking about here. Because as you read on, it's not just the general love that God has to all his creation. And he does. Make no mistake, we know that God has a general love for all men and for His creation. But this goes beyond that as we read further in the text. For His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You all know what that is. Jesus talked about that. You must be born again. Born once, die twice. 
Born twice, die once. Born again means that not that we have entered again into our mother's womb, but by the power of God's Word and the Holy Spirit, He takes that and takes out our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And we are saved. Born again. We are those who love God in spirit and by His truth. That's what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 4. We are those who don't just intellectually say, yes, there's a God. I believe there's a God. And at this time of the year, there's a lot of people who sing Christmas hymns about the birth of the little baby Jesus. And many of them leave the baby Jesus in the manger. We're not talking about a general intellectual knowledge of God. No, we are talking about an intimate, a personal, a life-changing relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be born again. It is a visible, tangible change in your life. And if that's never happened, you've never been born again. We're going to talk more about that even as we go through. But this is what he's talking about. Not just the general mercy of God, but rather the saving mercy of God, which is for his people. The people that Peter was writing to. He's speaking to those Christians. And he's praising God for his love and his mercy that would save them. And so... This carries down to you and me today, to his church, to all of us who are saved. And we're thinking about, and he's thinking about, and he's reminding them of all that God had done to bring about their salvation. The mercy of God in choosing us from before the foundation of the world. The mercy of God in sending His Son, Jesus, as a tiny infant through the Virgin Mary, born in poverty in Bethlehem. The mercy of God, seeing His Son raised, seeing His Son live a spotless, perfect life, all the teaching, all the miracles, all the work that He did, to the glory of God. And yet men cried, crucify him. Seeing his son then go to the cross. And not just watching him while he was on the cross, but actually actively pouring out his wrath that I deserved upon his son while he was on the cross. Which is what Jesus did on the cross actively took my judgment, actively took the wrath that I deserved and paid for it all perfectly on the cross. All of this out of His mercy. I was unlovely. I was unworthy, undeserved sinner. All of us 
are undeserving sinners. And yet, the mercy of God caused all of this to happen. And so Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for all these mercies so that you don't have to go to hell. Because you cannot earn heaven by your works. You could never make it on your own. You could never do enough to offset the bad with the good, which is what so many people today think. I'm a good person. I'll go to heaven. No, no, no. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. And were it not for the mercy of God, we would all go there. And so Peter is saying, praise God for His mercies. And He did all of this for us that we would not only just escape hell, but verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. How could you not praise God for that? When you think of the wrath and the judgment of God and that He sent His Son Jesus to die for you and to save you because you were a sinner and helpless and could not save yourself and He did it. He did it for you when you weren't even born yet. And now, because of His work, And because of His Spirit taking those things and making them real to you, causing you to be born again, you won't go to hell. How can you not praise God for that? And so I say to you, this is what increase the magnitude of our gratitude. We'll look just a little bit more at what he says here. He says that it's through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, he was the first fruits because Jesus was raised from the dead. So will you. And so will you be raised from the dead to go to heaven, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation. And there's the word salvation. I say again, what does salvation mean? mean we use it all the time we say it all the time you must be saved we we need to be saved you have to have salvation salvation is being saved from the wrath of god and so in this text peter is talking about the great salvation that we have through christ's work and the proof is in his resurrection and He is the first fruits. we too will be resurrected to life and to heaven and therefore not to hell because that's the alternative. The alternative to going to glory with God and going to heaven with Jesus is going to hell and eternal punishment. So Peter is here praising God for all His mercies, for all that He has done to give us this Eternal inheritance. It will never, even as he says in the text, pass away. Isn't that a great hope? 
I ask you again, how could you not give thanks? And this is what he even goes on to say. If you look a little bit further in verse 6 and following. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while if necessary. You have been distressed by various trials. You know our current trials are real. I'll never make light of them or diminish them. Some even here today have been going through trials. Fortunately, we're, we're pretty blessed in this place. But I know, and I've been praying for you, and I've been praying for you in the trials that you have gone through. The heartaches that you have over lost loved ones, and all these things are real. But in comparison to eternity with God and missing the wrath of God, they pale into insignificance. Whatever you may be going through now, and I again, I'm not going to diminish it or make light of it or say it's not real or, not, or it's nothing. That's not what I'm saying. But in comparison to hell, you ain't seen nothing yet. And in comparison to heaven, we'll forget all of these things. And so Peter is saying, in this we rejoice. The magnitude of our gratitude is beyond belief as we realize that we will not go to hell and rather we will spend eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider, my friends, my people, His great mercy to you in all that He has done. And you will give thanks and praise and give great gratitude to God for all that He has done. I feel like I'm compelled to. I mean, sometimes the greatest... Time in the whole week ought to be when we gather together to praise God, to worship God for all that He has done for us. That's what we're doing. Praising and thanking and worshiping God for His great mercy and His great love to us. Now with these things in mind, I ask you to please turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25. And I want you to put yourself there. I want you to be there on this day that Jesus speaks of in this text. And then consider why you won't go to hell. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Here you have the time. It is the end of this age. It is the beginning of the age to come. It is the return of Jesus Christ. No secret. The actual, literal coming again of Jesus Christ. And as we read on, we see that it is judgment. When he comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. 
and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Here's Judgment Day. And the great shepherd Jesus is before all the world, all the nations, all the men that have ever lived, all the women that have ever lived, all the boys and all the girls. And they will be separated into three categories. Oh, the carnal Christian, where do they go? Sorry, there's only two categories. The sheep and the goats. And as you see in the text, they represent the saved and the lost. And because we know of our Lord Jesus' teaching in other portions of even this very same gospel, that those on His right will be far fewer than those on His left. For broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on that, but narrow is the way that leads to glory, and few there be that find it. And so here we have our Lord Jesus with the goats on the left, and the sheep are on His right. And look what He says. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed of My Father. Okay, we'll come back to that. But I want to begin by looking at those who are on his left. Verse 41. And we don't have to go very far. Then he will say to those on his left, which are the goats, Depart from me, ye accursed ones, into the eternal flame, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. We don't need to go any farther. I can't take the time to open up the entire passage. But it's clear that those that he calls the goats, those that would be on his left, are those that are slated for the eternal fires of hell. I remind you that this is Jesus. This is not Pastor Hildebrandt sticking in something about hell to prove my point. This is Jesus. And Jesus is warning men that there is a judgment day coming on the last day, on judgment day, when I come again in my glory, there's going to be judgment right away. And right away, the lost are on my left. And here's what I'm going to tell them. Depart from me, ye accursed ones. Don't think that people who don't love Jesus, that may be well-meaning and sincere people, are good people. That's not what Jesus calls them. Jesus calls them accursed. There is only one way to be with the sheep, and that is to be a follower of the shepherd if you are not a follower of the shepherd, you are, according to the shepherd, accursed, which is a term of judgment and condemnation. And so Jesus warns that they shall be 
cast into the eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels and his followers, which is everyone who is not a follower of the shepherd. I don't want you to ever hear him say that. I don't want any of you who are here today to ever hear Jesus say, Depart from me, ye accursed one. I know some of you aren't used to a preacher yelling like I do and saying things so bluntly. That's okay. You can, you can think it's mean or you can think whatever you want. I don't care. I want you to know the shepherd. That's what I want. I want you to know Jesus so that you never hear these words. So that you will hear what he says in verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The foundation of the world. God prepared that kingdom in heaven for me, for you, if you are indeed a follower of the shepherd. Come, you who are blessed. Can you imagine Jesus referring to you as blessed? Can you imagine Jesus saying that He's prepared this for you from the foundation of the world? That you are the righteous? How on earth can Jesus ever say that to me? Look at verse 37. The righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give to you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Do you see the demeanor of the sheep? The demeanor of the sheep is not, Lord, you got to let me into the kingdom for all this stuff I've done. The demeanor of the sheep is, I am unworthy. I've never done what I should have done. I've never been good enough. When, oh God, did I deserve this? Never! But by my mercy, come into my kingdom. That ought to give you goosebumps. To think that one day you will really stand there in this day and you will see men consigned to hell for all eternity as the Savior says to you, 
come. Come and be with me through all eternity. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to be with Jesus. That's that healthy, biblical, real fear of judgment and the wrath of God, which brings a magnitude of gratitude to the saved for all that he has done. Thank you, Jesus, that I will not hear those words. Thank you, Jesus, that I will not be with the goats. And thank you, Jesus, that I will not go to where they go. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. I can remember as a boy sitting in a, uh, a place that was a so-called church and not at all even beginning to understand what they were talking about. But I know that they talked about hell and I knew I didn't want to go there. And I am just so thankful that some 23 years later God showed me that I didn't have to, and how. That's through Jesus. And what we saw Peter speaking of in 1 Peter chapter 1, that through His mercy, we have been born again. Gosh. What could be greater than to give God thanks for redemption, for heaven, and not going to hell. Now here's one more thing I want to bring under this magnitude of gratitude. One more little point. It's not a little point. It's actually a really big point. And it just ought to give you such thanks to God. Even in this text, Jesus talks about the fact that this was prepared from the foundation of the world. Do you remember what we saw last Lord's Day in chapter 11? Look back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. And we talked about how Jesus evangelized. He warned men of hell. In verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, and to you, Bethsaida. And he warned them of the miracles and said that uh, if they had happened to them, they would have repented. So he warned them of the wrath of God. And then he says in verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But we need to back up just a little bit and be reminded of what he said first. Verse 25, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, and didst reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in thy sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills. To reveal Him. Do you know Jesus today? It's not because you're such a good person. 
It's not because you're such a smart person. It's not because you read your Bible more than someone else. It's because Jesus willed it. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6 as we look at a few more texts. John chapter 6, down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is, what is he saying? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He even repeats it if you look over to verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Why do you love God? Why do you love his word? What makes you different from the multitudes of people who continually pass by this building in either direction without even a thought to God or to His Son Jesus, to heaven or to hell, to salvation, to judgment? What makes you any different? You've been drawn by the Father. I want to tell you something that has been as lost as the wrath of God on many churches today. It's quite simple. Jesus saves. Not you. Not me. Not preachers. Not your decision. God saves you. He's talking about the whole matter of being raised up on the last day. And it's by His mercy. That's what Peter was talking about. His mercy that caused us to be born again. His will. Not mine, not yours. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus said that no one can come unless he has been drawn by the Holy Spirit by God. No one can come unless it be granted by the Father. And how does that happen? Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that you have comes from the Father including that most important spiritual blessing of your salvation. It all comes from God. You didn't do it. You can't do it. I'll show you why in a moment. But he says, Just as He chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 27? Come into this heaven prepared to you from the foundation of of the world. And here Paul speaks about you being chosen in God the Father from before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Listen, 
according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace. So when you think of yourself as being saved, it's by His grace. To His glory. And that is why we express our gratitude and our praise and our worship only to Him. Because we're unworthy. We could never have done it ourselves. We could never have saved ourselves. How do I know? Turn the page. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, the, the accursed, as Jesus called them. Remember? Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That is, that we deserved the wrath of God. And we could not do anything about it. Why? Because we were dead. That's what he says. Dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Richard Dest did a uh, memorial service, two of them in fact, for dead people. But they weren't there. I like to have uh, a funeral service when the dead person is there. Not too long ago, we had a funeral service for our sister Cheryl. She was there in the, in the coffin. At least her body was. You go over to that dead body and you say, Get up! Make a decision for Jesus! What can they do? Absolutely nothing! There's nothing that a dead person can do to save themselves. You cannot make a decision for Jesus if you're dead. Because dead people don't make decisions. Something must happen. Verse 4. But God being rich in what? Mercy! His mercy! His love! Because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Grace. And mercy. Here's my question. What if he never showed his mercy to you? What if he never showed his mercy to you? What if he never showed his mercy to you? You would still be dead. 
If He did not show His mercy to you, you would be those to whom Jesus said, Depart from me, ye accursed, into eternal fire. You're just going down the road, having a good old time, enjoying your sin, thinking nothing of it. The only things that matter to you is how much money you can make, how many girls you can date, how nice a car you have, the house is the biggest, and all of these things. That's just life today to the dead man. But then all of a sudden, something happened to you. All of a sudden, something changed. You're a drunk You were addicted, and all of a sudden, God, God comes to you from His Word, from a crazy yelling preacher, comes to you with the power of the Holy Spirit and takes His Word and pierces your heart and says, I don't want to go to hell. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I need mercy. Have mercy on me, oh God. That's God working in your life. I can't do that. I began this message by saying I can't make anyone saved. I can't say the right words in the right way to get you to believe or to change your heart. But God does. God changes lives. Because that's what Paul, that's what the writer Paul even says here. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. He does it. Jesus saves, not preachers. Jesus saves. I can't make you make a decision. Come forward. Raise a hand. Jesus saves. God and only God can make dead people to live. And now here's my point. How thankful are you that God did? That God did save you? That God did not leave you on that Damascus road. That God did not leave you to yourself and to your own sin. That God did not leave you to just go down this life and want cars and things and boats and houses and whatever you can accumulate. God did not leave you to your drinking and to your drugs. God, in His mercy, comes to you and makes a dead man or a dead woman or a dead girl to live, to live. God does that. Praise God. Praise God that He does. There's the magnitude of gratitude that even all that He did, it was Him who stopped me arrested me on the Damascus road and saved me by His grace. 
How can we have any more gratitude for the mercy of God in saving us so that we do not go to hell? I must ask you, do you know where you will be on that last day, on that judgment day? Will you be with the sheep or will you be with the goats? Serious question, people. Because only the sheep, the visible followers of Jesus, will be with Him in glory. This is not fairy tales. Put aside all that thinking that people teach about evolution and that there is no God or no judgment. There is! And men will give account. Will you be with the sheep or will you be with the goats? Don't be uncertain which group you'll be in. You can know in this life. You can know now. And you must know that you will not incur the wrath of God. And I have one other thing that I'm going to mention very briefly. I ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Now, we have looked at this passage on a number of occasions in this study, but I just want you to leave with this one thing also, and that is to increase the awe for our atonement. To increase our eagerness to evangelize our magnitude of gratitude and our awe for the atonement. I'll tell you what, look back to chapter 3 real quick. I remind you again in chapter 3 that he says in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are sinners. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over sins previously committed. But here's my point here. We're all sinners. We all deserve hell. But Jesus gave His life on the cross to propitiate God's wrath. Now chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still helpless, or sinners, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His love, His mercy, Toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That's atonement. He shed His blood to atone for our sins that we will not incur the wrath of God. We will be saved. So not only ought that to make us 
grateful and bring great gratitude towards God, it ought to bring awe to our hearts and our minds as we think of all that God did to save you. And what He did was send His Son. And what His Son did was to die on the cross, shedding His blood that we would be saved from the wrath of God. What awe. What amazement as you consider all that God has done for us, His children. Do you remember when I mentioned to you what A.W. Pink said in his book, The Attributes of God, on the chapter regarding the wrath of God? He lamented that it was sad that so many professing Christians appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. In this aspect of God, or in this aspect of the works of God, men act as if they're ashamed. We have multitudes of churches today who refuse to speak about sin or the judgment of God or the wrath of God as if they are ashamed of it. And if only that wasn't in the Bible, people would like us better. Like they have to apologize for the wrath of God being in the Bible. I hope that after these weeks of study, you will recognize the utter folly in that. Because we've looked at how Jesus used His wrath or the wrath of God to evangelize, to stir men's hearts and then to say to them, come to me. Why would anybody come to Jesus to be saved from the wrath of God if there is no wrath of God to be saved from? And that's the way they act. I think Pink is right. I think it's gotten to the point today where people refuse to mention it. Not me. And I hope not you. I hope that you've seen in this study His glory, His power, His justice, and the magnitude of His grace to you in sending His Son to die for your sins, to be saved from His wrath. What a great God we have. What a wonderful God we have. What a God of mercy and grace we have. Thank Him for not only His wrath, but for His salvation through Jesus from that wrath. Amen? Let's pray.